If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast for this September 17, 2020. 17. My name is John Ziegler. I am the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. This being our number two. Uh, this is usually our guest hour, and uh, we are continuing our really strong run of very interesting guests. This one is a fascinating guest, a guy who um, some of you may know a lot about, but a lot of you probably know almost nothing about. Uh, his name is Bill Browder, and uh, he has written a book called Red Notice about his extraordinary interaction with Russia, Vladimir Putin, and how it relates directly to the entire uh, Trump-Russia controversy and potential scandal. He knows all of the players he is testified to the Senate Judiciary Committee. He is as nonpartisan as they get. In fact, he goes way out of his way, sometimes way, way, way out of his way to be as nonpartisan as possible, but still has a ton of information. And he's on the show this week partially because of one of our listeners, who I have to thank. Her name is Sally. Her last name is V A C I which I don't know if that's Vaki, Vaki, uh, Vachi, I don't, I don't know, whatever. But Sal, Sally, thank you for helping set this up because she's a big fan of Bill Browder and uh, she's a big fan of the podcast. Uh, so um, Bill was very uh, uh, accommodating and, and willing to, to join us. And so he does that now. Joining us now from London is Bill Browder, author of Red Notice, A True Story of High Finance Murder and One Man's Fight for Justice. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. All right. Uh, there has been uh, a ton of news, uh, obviously, uh, continuing to come out. Uh, well, what we think we know about the investigation into potential Russian influence into the 2016 election. Uh, you are really at, at the center of this whole story on a number of levels. You recently testified to the Senate Judiciary Committee. I want to go through your story because I think it's integral to how we got to where we are and also because it gives you some context for your book and, and why you're an expert on, on this uh, entire issue. 
so let's go back and and uh, talk about your story. You, you did a ton of business in Russia, and then you were deported. And pick the story up there as to to how that ended up uh, creating a, a a series of circumstances that are really integral to this whole story. Sure. Well, um, so I, I went to Russia back in in um, the early '90s when the when the privatization program had first begun, and I set up an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund to invest in the Russian stock market. It became the largest fund in the Russian stock market, and I um, started to uh, discover just shocking examples of corruption and malfeasance in these large public companies I invested in. So we started to expose the corruption. And some of these companies were like Gazprom, which is a very famous and large gas company, and the electricity company, and various other big companies out there. And by exposing the corruption, um, I ended up on the wrong side of, of uh, Vladimir Putin. And on November 13, 2005, as I was flying back into Russia, where I had been living for 10 years, and I was the largest foreign investor in their country, um, I was stopped at Sheremetyevo 2 Airport, which is their international airport. Um, I was arrested. I was detained uh, for 15 hours at the airport. And then they put me onto an Aeroflot flight and deported me back to London and subsequently declared me a threat to national security. And um, at that point, I thought that um, uh, when the Russians turn on you, they don't tend to do so mildly. They tend to do so with extreme prejudice. So I thought to myself, okay, I better get all my people out and better get all our money out. And so I evacuated my staff, and we sold every last share uh, of every last Russian company we had in our portfolio, got everything out, and then we said to ourselves, phew, um, that was pretty scary, but we're out. And I thought that was the end of the story. But obviously it was not. Um, and I, I guess we picked this up with the fact that you, you hired a lawyer uh, to basically figure out what the heck was going on, why you were targeted by Russia. And so tell us about that uh, portion of the story. Sure. So, so after, um, after we, got, we sold everything and got everything out, you know, I, I started to do other things. And one day I got this telephone call from my um, office in Moscow, and um, I, I did keep a small office there even after we sold everything. And the secretary said, there's 25 police officers here raiding your, off- ra- raiding your office. What should I do? And I said, I'm not sure, but let me um, call up our lawyer. So I called up uh, my lawyer, it's a, an American guy in Moscow named Jameson Firestone. And I said, hey, Jamie, what, what, uh, we got a bunch of uh, pl- uh, 25 police officers raiding our office. What should I do? And he said, I'm not sure. I've got 25 police officers raiding my office looking for your documents. And basically on that day, it was June 4th, uh, 2007, 18 months after I was expelled, uh, 50 police officers raided, did two raids, um, looking for the stamps, seals, and certificates for our investment holding companies, and um, uh, they found them at the um, uh, they found them at the law firm, and they um, uh, seized those documents. And then the next thing we knew, um, uh, we didn't own our investment companies anymore. They had been fraudulently re-registered using the documents seized by the police, and uh, transferred into the name of a guy who had been convicted of murder and let out of jail early um, by the police to, to sign his name on these documents. And uh, at, it was at that point that I said, you know, this is scary. I don't know what the police are up to, but I don't want to be on the wrong side of this. And we went and hired the smartest lawyer we knew in Russia, a young man named Sergei Magnitsky. Um, Sergei was at the time 35 years old. I asked him to investigate what was going on. 
And uh, Sergei went out and investigated and came back and said, I figured out what's going on. He said that, that these guys had two objectives. The first objective was to steal all your money, which they didn't succeed in doing because you got all your money out. But the second objective they did succeed in doing, which was that when we were taking uh, our money out, um, um, we, we sold all of our stock and we ended up with a huge profit and we declared a billion dollars of profits to the Russian government, the tax service, and we paid uh, $230 million of, of capital gains tax to the Russian government. And what Sergei had figured out was using a bunch of forged documents and, and such things that this group of, of criminals and, and government officials together stole $230 million of taxes that we paid to the Russian government from the Russian government using our, our stolen companies. And, um, and, and not only do they do that, but they, they, uh, they did it on Christmas Eve, um, 2007. Um, it took one day for the tax service to approve and pay it out. And it was the largest tax refund in the history of Russia. <laughs> okay. And if, you, if people are thinking, wow, this is an amazing story, we're, we're pretty much still, uh, at maybe not the tip of the iceberg, but we haven't gotten to anywhere near the, the whole iceberg because people may recognize that name, Magnitsky. Uh, and for good reason. Uh, so tell us what happens with him. Well, so, so we, we then decided, we, we said to ourselves, well, Putin, you know, he might be a bad guy, but he's, he's a nationalist, right? He's a, he's a patriot of Russia. He's always talking about, you know, Mother Russia and, and all that kind of stuff. So we said, so thought to ourselves, well, if, if Putin knew and all the senior people in Russia knew about this crime against their own country. Now, remember, this was not money, my money they stole. This was the money of the Russian government that they stole. So we figured if he knew about that, then the good guys would get the bad guys, and that would be the end of the story. So we, uh, we um, uh, write criminal complaints to every different branch of the Russian law enforcement system. Uh, I go to the newspapers and radio and television to publicize <clears throat> the whole thing. And then Sergei um, gives sworn testimony to the Russian State Investigative Committee, which is their version of the FBI. And we sat back, and then we waited for the good guys to get the bad guys. And... Uh, about uh, and then what we discovered was that there are no good guys in Putin's Russia. There are only bad guys. And six months, six weeks after Sergei testified, the same officers he testified against came to his home at eight in the morning in front of his wife and two children on the twenty fourth of November, uh, two thousand and eight. They arrested him. They put him in pretrial detention, and then he was he was then tortured in pretrial detention to get him to withdraw his testimony against these police officers. And they wanted to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million, and he did so on my instruction. And they put him in cells with um, 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. And they put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in December in Moscow, so he nearly froze to death. They put him in cells with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They moved him from cell to cell to cell in the middle of the night. They moved him 28 times in 358 days in detention. And the purpose, as I said, was they wanted to get him to sign this false confession. And they thought, that here's a guy. He wears a blue suit and a red tie and buys his coffee at Starbucks in the morning and sits in his cubicle and as a tax lawyer. You know, he'll buckle in a week. And what they didn't understand about Sergei Magnitsky was that he's one of the most principled men in Russia, and he was just absolutely under no conditions was he going to perjure himself or bear false witness? And so he, um, he just refused, and, and the situation got worse and worse. He ended up um, 
getting terrible pains in his stomach. His health broke down. He ended up losing 40 pounds. Um, and he was diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and needing an operation, um, which was scheduled for the 1st of August, 2009. And again, a week before um, uh, the operation, they came to him again. Again, he refused to give this false uh, testimony. And, um, and so they then abruptly moved him from a prison that had a medical wing to a maximum security prison in, in Moscow called Buchirka, which is considered to be one of the toughest, most horrific prisons in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei, they have no medical wing there. And at Buchirka, his health completely broke down. He went into a, a total downward spiral. He and his lawyers wrote 20 different desperate requests for medical attention, and every one of their requests was either ignored or in some cases denied in writing. And eventually his body could no longer handle it anymore. And on the night of um, November 16, 2009, he went into critical condition. And it was on that night that the Butyrka authorities then decided that they didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore. And so they put him in an ambulance to a different prison uh, where they had a medical wing. When he arrived at this other prison, instead of putting him in the emergency room, um, they put him in an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed. And then uh, eight riot guards with rubber batons came into that cell. With their rubber batons, they beat him to death. That was November 16, 2009. Sergei Magnitsky was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. I got the news the very next morning at 7.45 a.m. in London, and it was by far the worst, most heartbreaking, life-changing, horrific news I could have ever gotten. And basically, Sergei Magnitsky had been killed because he was my lawyer. He was killed in my place. He'd still be alive today if he hadn't been my lawyer. And so when I was finally able to get over the absolute shock of the of the situation and the hysteria, um, when I could look at it in the cold light of day, I said to myself that um, uh, for Sergey's memory, for his family, and for and for myself, I was going to go out and get the people who killed him and make sure that they faced justice. And for the last uh, almost eight years now, that's what I've been doing. And um, we didn't have a, uh, we didn't have any luck in Russia, uh, even though this is probably now the most well documented human rights abuse case has kind of come out of Russia. In the last 35 years, uh, Putin completely circled the wagons. He got personally involved in, in this whole case. He um, uh, exonerated everybody involved. Um, he gave promotions and state honors to some of the people that were most complicit. And in the most horrifying miscarriage of justice, uh, three years after uh, his regime murdered Sergei Magnitsky, they put him on trial, put Sergei Magnitsky on trial in the first ever uh, trial against a dead man in the history of Russia put me on trial as his co-defendant. And um, so it became clear we needed to get justice outside of Russia. All right. Well, I want to talk about your quest for justice and how that then ends up uh, being integral to the entire uh, Trump-Russian investigation. But uh, first of all, I'm a little bit uh, confused as to why Russia felt so strongly. I mean, I get I get having a vendetta against somebody, but this was more than a vendetta. This was this what what is the motivation here to get your lawyer? We're talking about, you know, a significant amount of money and some significant crimes, but it, it feels like a disconnect. What am I missing, Bill? What what's what's part of the equation I'm missing? Well, you're missing the same part of the equation we were missing until about a year ago, which is 
Um, you know, we, we were scratching our heads and say, well, why? you know, there's a million crimes being committed in Russia all the time and so on and so forth. Why are they reacting so ridiculously, vindictively and violently and horribly in this particular case? And, and, and what we learned um, recently, a year ago, is that Putin was one of the beneficiaries of this specific crime, that we were able to trace the money. We, we, one of the things we did after, after uh, Sergei was killed was we were, we'd been working on a seven-and-a-half-year um, investigation into who got the money, and we found out who got the money, and some of that money went to Putin. Didn't go to Putin. Uh, didn't go to a bank account that had Vladimir Putin's name on it, but it went to a bank account with the name Sergey Roldugin on it. And Sergey Roldugin um, was exposed um, about a year ago when the Panama Papers came out. The Panama Papers is a huge data leak that came out of a big law firm in Panama. And from this law firm in Panama, we learned that um, a man named Sergey Roldugin, who is um, Putin's best friend from childhood, um, and a cellist, uh, was able to basically get $2 billion of money from the Russian government and from Russian oligarchs. And, um, and it's, it's since been more or less confirmed that Roldugin is Putin's nominee. He's a trustee for Vladimir Putin. There's no reason why these people would be giving a simple cellist all this money unless there was something more to it. And that, that's, what more, that's, that's what is to it. And what we also discovered from our own investigation was that some of the money from this crime went to Sir Gabriel Dugan. And so, effectively, Vladimir Putin was one of the financial co-conspirators in this crime, and that's why he cared about it so much, and that's why there was instructions to effectively do a scorched earth strategy, which, and, and when I tell the next part of the story, it will become obvious how clearly Putin got involved in this whole thing. Well, go ahead. Uh, what's the next step, then? Well, the next step is when we couldn't get justice inside of Russia, we said, let's get justice outside of Russia. And then the question was, how do you get justice outside of Russia? And in this particular case, we said, well, look, this, these guys did this for money. They did, they, they, uh, they did it to cover up the theft of $230 million. And those people don't keep that money in Russia. They keep it in the West. And so um, if we could ban their visas and freeze their assets, um, that would be a really a, a very significant thing. And so... I took this idea, and I went to Washington, and I presented it to Senator Benjamin Cardin, who's a Democrat from Maryland, and I presented it to Senator John McCain, Republican from Arizona, and I said, here's the story of Sergei Magnitsky. They killed him for money. Can we block their visas and ban and freeze their assets? And these two gentlemen said, yes, we can. And they came up with something which is called the Magnitsky Act. And it was introduced at the end of 2010, and the Magnitsky Act um, uh, applies to all the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky and all the people who do similar types of things in Russia. And it went through Congress, and it was in, uh, eventually passed in, in um, uh, 92 to 4 in the Senate in, 2000, in November 2012, 89% of the House of Representatives, and it became law on December 14, 2012. And about two weeks later, Vladimir Putin then reacted and responded so angrily, it took everybody, including Russia, by surprise, and what he did was he blocked the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. And this is, this is a strange reaction to this, you know, financial sanctions against criminals, but it showed how emotionally upset he was because, um, uh, and I should, I should point out how heinous this particular action was because the orphans who were being adopted were not just regular orphans. These were mostly sick orphans. The Russians didn't allow the healthy ones to um, be put up for foreign adoption. 
And so these kids had, had HIV from their mothers. They had fetal alcohol syndrome. They had uh, heart conditions. They had Down syndrome. And American families would come over to Russia with open arms and open hearts and bring these poor, sick children back to America and nurse them back to health. And this has been going on for a number of years. And effectively, um, if, they're not, if, if these children are not adopted by um, American families and kept in the orphanages, they don't have the resources to keep them alive. And so a number of these children um, were effectively sentenced to death. So Putin was sentencing to death his own disabled and sick orphans um, as a way of trying to put pressure on the U.S. to protect Putin's own corrupt officials. And he and Putin did this partially because he understands uh, America and the West well enough to know uh, about pulling heartstrings, the media, political correctness. Uh, it hasn't worked, uh, but that was his his theory, right? That he would he would use emotion to try to get the United States to back off of the sanctions that you got passed through Congress. Well, he, he thought maybe they wouldn't implement the sanctions, and, and moreover, he wa- he didn't want any other countries to follow suit. And I had actually I was in Ireland working on an Irish Magnitsky Act, and, and, and the Irish backed off. They, they, they said, we, you know, we, uh, the uh, adoption program is too important. We don't want to do this. And so, um, uh, and we've seen that in other countries as well. So it worked for, for mm-hmm. a little while in, in the West and in other countries. It didn't work in America. Amer- America um, in, in introduced and, and implemented the Magnitsky Act. There are currently 44 people on the U.S. Magnitsky list. 35 of them were connected directly to the false arrest, torture, and death of Sergei Magnitsky, and nine of them are connected to other brutal human rights abuses. Um, so it didn't work. And, and Putin has, has publicly said that it's his single largest foreign policy priority um, to get the Magnitsky Act repealed. He put, a, he put a policy paper together with those words in it. And so, so, so it, it, it's clear, and, and it's obvious why, why he doesn't want the Magnitsky Act, because he thinks that he will eventually be sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act, and he's no normal head of state. This is a guy with $200 billion. He's stolen $200 billion from the Russian state over the course of his presidency. Um, and he keeps that money in the name of other people like this cellist in the West. And he thinks that at some point, all the money that he's stolen, which is the primary reason why he's always been president, um, all that money that he's stolen will eventually get seized and he won't be able, allowed to use it in the future. And for him, that's just truly unacceptable. And so this is a true high-level issue that he wants to resolve, and he wants to get this Magnitsky Act repealed. Okay, so to review and and kind of move forward a little bit, so you get the Magnitsky Act passed. When people think of sanctions against Russia, uh, that's what they should be thinking about, at least those that, that Putin is most concerned about. And then you've already mentioned within those sanctions Putin's response with regard to the issue of adoptions. And, of course, the word adoptions has been used many times by Donald Trump and by Donald Trump Jr. in relation to their uh, um, interaction with the Russian lawyer, uh, Natalia Veselnaskaya, who had that uh, meeting at Trump Tower with a bunch of other people, and supposedly all they did was they talked about adoptions. And for the uneducated about this, that might sound fairly uh, innocuous and, and benign. Tell us why that's not the case. Well, first of all, they weren't talking about adoptions. <laughs> they were talking about repealing sanctions against crooks from Russia who kill. That's what they were talking about. And moreover, 
just everyone needs to know who this Russian woman lawyer was. Natalia Veselnitskaya was not just a lawyer um, dealing with this issue. She was a lawyer dealing with a Russian oligarch. She was working for a Russian oligarch who had been caught in America by the U.S. law enforcement authorities having received money from the crime that Sergei Magnitsky exposed and was killed over. And that guy had been caught, and his assets were frozen by the U.S. Department of Justice. And she had been in New York dealing with both a civil and a criminal case for money laundering of Russians who received money from the Magnitsky uh, story. And so, so here, she, here she is in New York, basically as a, as a, as a, uh, a, a, a lawyer for an alleged Russian mobster, um, and, and she has two tasks. One is to try to get rid of this case against her clients, against this Russian alleged mobster, and the second is to repeal the Magnitsky Act. And that's what she spent the last three years doing. And, and she doesn't, that, that woman doesn't give a, one hoot about orphans at all. If you read her timeline on her Twitter feed, she never mentions orphans once. She mentions me, and she mentions the Magnitsky Act over and over and over and over again because she is basically a, a sketchy lawyer working for a bunch of sketchy Russians um, and working for Vladimir Putin. Okay, so I'm a cynic, and uh, you know I certainly don't trust uh, anything that comes out of the Trump White House, even though I'm a conservative. I don't consider him to be conservative. And, uh, and I think I have a pretty good sense of how Trump works, especially when it comes to the way that he, he tends to not re- regard the truth very highly. So let me put out a, a, a theory then about that meeting and get your, your reaction to it. And this is not a you know, particularly controversial theory, but it's one that I think is, is worth uh, at least getting your, your response to. So uh, Vessel Naskaya sets up this meeting. There's a bunch of other people that are in it. And the alleged issue, according to Donald Trump Jr., is adoptions. As you've said, that's effectively code word for sanctions. And what I sense is that this was a way of people working on behalf of Putin and Russia, figuring out whether or not, if they were to help Trump get elected, would the Magnitsky uh, sanctions be uh, curtailed, reversed, revoked, what have you. And they're trying to feel the Trump people out on this. And and it appears from what we now know about what happened later with WikiLeaks and Facebook and Twitter that they must have gotten at least some sense that it might be worth helping uh, Trump win, uh, which would, in the logical world, mean that they got some sort of positive response from their inquiry. What do you make of the theory I just laid out? You know, I, 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 here's what I know for sure, and, and the rest, we, it's pure speculation. What, what we know for sure, and there's no question about this, is that what they went to that meeting at Trump Tower for, when Natalia Veselnitskaya and her sidekick, a, a former Russian spy named Renat Akhmetshin, what they went to Trump Tower for was to approach the son of the possible president of the United States, because he hadn't been elected yet, and ask him, whether he'd be willing to repeal the Magnitsky Act. That was their ask. We know that. That's the only thing that all eight people in that meeting agree on. And that's, I think that's, we can pretty much ascertain that as a fact. What we don't know for, uh, beyond that is what, so, so they're coming into this meeting with this big offer, I mean, or I should say this big request, which is, you know, repeal uh, a monumental piece of human rights legislation as it affects Russia. 
these people are not stupid. Putin is not stupid. They don't go in just asking for stuff. You, can, you don't go to meetings asking for stuff. You go to meetings with, with an offer of what you're going to do in return. And what we don't know about that meeting, and everybody has a different story, is what they offered in return for their ask. And that, that's, that's where we stand today. Nobody knows. And, and, and we can make up a lot of theories about it. Okay, but and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, Bill. I'm not suggesting that you know for a fact what happened. But what what do you make of the theory that I laid out? Is there anything that we know that's incompatible with that theory? Um, I, I, you know, it, it, there there is a guy who's investigating this who's pro, who's got resources a thousand times greater than any of us have just reading the newspapers, and that's Robert Mueller, and he's going to come up with a conclusion to this whole thing, and he's either either going to fully damn. Donald Trump or fully exonerate him, uh, depending on the facts and what he's been able to come up with. And everybody asks me to speculate, and, and I'm not going to speculate. I'm just going to say what we know and what we don't know. And what okay. we know is that, is that this is the most important thing that Vladimir Putin wanted. He, he spent huge resources in a lot of different ways trying to get the Magnitsky Act repealed. Everybody knows for sure that these people went to have it repealed, and everyone knows for sure that they wouldn't have gone empty-handed. And then what, what they were offering in return and whether that was in any way valuable to the Trump people, we're not going to know until some information comes out from this, okay. which it will. All right. The information will come out. Fair enough. I, let me ask you a, a slightly different way. And I don't, I don't think this is asking for speculation. This is asking for your expertise on Vladimir Putin. Yep. Okay. So after that meeting, we know that WikiLeaks uh, starts working effectively on Trump's behalf. Uh, we know that uh, Russian-related uh, uh, Twitter and, and Facebook uh, users are spreading fake news about Hillary Clinton effectively on Trump's behalf. Based upon what you know about the way Russia and Putin works, would they do that for no apparent reason? And, uh, w- let me just stop there. Would they no, do that course, for no uh, apparent uh, uh, reason? Of course not. This was a, this was a state-sponsored exercise, and that's been confirmed as well. So. The 17 intelligence agencies of the United States government have confirmed that Russia was manipulating the, the outcome of the U.S. election in a variety of different ways. That there, there's no question about that, and it falls. And, and this was a, this is how this is what's called active measures by the Russian FSB, the Russian secret police, um, to try to get what they want. And, and what do they want? They wanted Donald Trump elected. Why do they want Donald Trump elected? Because Donald Trump has publicly stated, and perhaps privately, we don't know, but publicly stated that he, he thinks that NATO um, shouldn't exist in its current form. He's publicly stated that he doesn't like the EU. Um, he's publicly stated he didn't like sanctions against Russia. And th- these are all the main things that, that Vladimir Putin uh, very much wants. And so it's clear why, why they wanted him. Um, it's just not clear, what, you know, okay, but whether what, there was but, a deal or not deal to make it all happen. But, but based upon what you know about Russia and Putin, would they have done these things without a deal? Yeah, they would have done it without a deal, and they would have done it with a deal. So we'll have to, have to wait to see <laughs> if a deal was done. I mean, they, 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 they mess around all over the world in every different way, and it's not just America that they're messing with. I mean, they, they, the, the Dutch went to paper ballots because they were so afraid of the Russians messing around with their voting machine. Mm. The, um, the French basically banned they – they had a whole WikiLeaks type of thing going on in France right before their election. German, the Germans are sitting there every day right now because they got an election coming up later this month just dreading the, the, the data dump from Russia and WikiLeaks, et cetera. Okay. And so the, 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 these guys are active. They're active everywhere, and, and they do it either with or without um, consent. All right. So, so, Bill, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but the way as I look at this whole story as we currently know it and and your involvement in it, you can make a very strong argument that without their attack on you and then their murder of your lawyer Magninsky, that none of this happens. Is that a fair assessment? When I say none of this, I mean none of the Trump-Russia circumstance happens because there's no motivation that we really know of or not as much motivation for Putin to to intervene on Trump's behalf. Uh, do you do you take issue with that or do you agree with that assessment that that without you starting these dominoes, that history might be very different right now? <laughs> well, I think I may be overstating my my role in the in the history of of this whole story. I, I, I do think that that the Magnitsky case, my case, um, clearly plays plays into this in a big way. Having said that, um, they still want a lot of other things in addition to repealing Magnitsky sanctions, which they continue to want. They, they you know, Putin is exercised about NATO. He's exercised about uh, Ukraine sanctions. He's exercised about a lot of different things. And so, um, I, I, you know, I don't think that, that Putin wouldn't, it, 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 had it not been for me and Sergei Magnitsky, Putin wouldn't have manipulated the U.S. elections. I, uh, I, I, although I can say that that, that that was a pretty good reason for him to want to okay. get a guy he thought was sympathetic to him in. Okay, you, you've already mentioned special counsel Robert Mueller, and a lot of the news surrounding him, most recently has dealt with the issue of financial crimes and issues like money laundering. Now, this is interesting because you you're also an expert in, in this whole issue, having done an enormous amount of business uh, in Russia. Is there anything that has happened, uh, let's say, in the last week or two that we've learned about Mueller's investigation that caught your attention, that caught your eye, that you said, wow, OK, that's particularly interesting or significant? Well, there's one thing that caught my eye that's not connected to Mueller's investigation, which just came out in Bloomberg article two days ago, which is that the um, uh, the, the, the Natalia Veselnitskaya case, the one the money laundering case that brought her to New York um, uh, on that day that she had her Trump Tower meeting, um, there were two parts of that case. There was a civil case, and there's a criminal case. And very sort of strangely, the um, the civil case settled. Uh, days before it went to trial, and everybody thought that that was the end of that story. But it turns out that that the criminal case continues as of today against Natalia Veselnitskaya's client, which is potentially very significant because it means that there's still sort of things going on with the U.S. government in relation to her and and in relation to her client, which are which are all connected up to Vladimir Putin, and so. We don't know where that's all going to head, but that's all very interesting from from my perspective, and, and definitely something new and, and significant. What did you make of the story that during the campaign, even late into the Republican uh, primary nomination process, that Donald Trump was negotiating with Russia for a Trump Tower in Moscow? What did you make of that? Um, well, I, I thought that was very interesting. I, I, uh, uh, I mean, I think that there's a lot of things that, that have come out recently that, that were uh, interesting. I thought the the, um, uh, the notes uh, of of Paul Manafort uh, who came out of that meeting with with uh, uh, Donald Trump Jr. and Natalia Veselnitskaya were interesting. There there was there was some talk of donations or something like that in those notes. Um, uh, uh, you know, I'm 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 trying to keep up with all the different pieces of information that come out, but it's it's um, Every little piece is like a piece in the puzzle, and, and we're just each time we get one of those pieces, we probably put it into that puzzle and 
see if we can get a bigger picture. Is is there anything that you think that the media is missing or that they are misrepresenting in, in this entire Trump-Russia story? Um, no, I think the media has done an excellent job of, of, um, uh, of flushing out every little bit of stuff that comes out. Um, I mean, I, I continue to be frustrated, as you pointed out earlier in, in this uh, podcast, about the... Um, uh, this sort of misunderstanding whenever everybody still uses this term talking about adoptions. And I know that they were not talking about adoptions, that we should just put that aside and stop using the jargon that they came up with because it's just misleading and not true. None of these people were talking about adoptions. And uh, they were not, Donald Trump wasn't talking about adoptions at the G20 with Putin and his son and the others were not talking about adoptions with Putin's uh, agents in Trump Tower. Of course, you know, that's an interesting point because there's really only two interpretations here. Either the Trumps are completely clueless or they they think we're a bunch of idiots who are going to believe that adoptions was the issue and that they're covering up for something far more nefarious. I'm not going to ask you to, to pick one on that because I know that you're not going to answer that. But based upon what you know of Putin and based upon what you know of Trump, how comfortable should Americans be regarding them ever having any discussions over anything? Who, do you, who would you favor coming out as a victor in any matchup between Putin and Trump? Well, you know, uh, thankfully, we, we don't really have to have, uh, have that conversation because Congress um, has pretty much tied Trump's hands on this whole thing. If you, if you remember, um, a couple weeks ago, there was a vote in Congress on a new law which says that anything to do with Russia sanctions um, can no longer be decided by the president. It's going to got to be decided by Congress, and it passed 98 to two in the in the Senate, and it passed I think 414 to three in the House of Representatives. And they and it's basically and, and effectively Russia policy has been taken away from the White House and brought into Congress. And with so, regard to the sanctions, with regard to the sanctions, you're right, Bill. But there's obviously a lot of other things that the president of the United States and the president of Russia. Uh, can can do uh, in conjunction with one another. So I'll ask the question again: Should Americans be concerned? Uh, who do you like in, in as a as a favorite or a likely victor in any particular uh, battle between Trump meeting of the minds between Trump and Putin? Well, I, I, again, you know, you're you're sort of oversimplifying the story. So, who does Trump have? Um, uh, basically doing like the, the work on all this stuff. He's got the defense secretary. Um, he's got the head of the CIA. He's got the uh, United Nations, the ambassador to the United Nations. Um, he's got his, his secretary of state. And, and what I can tell you, and, and, and I'm not trying to avoid the question, what I can tell you is that the Russia policy uh, has not changed in the way that, you know, so you have, you have on one hand huge Russia hawks. You know, Jim uh, Mattis is a Russia hawk. You know, the, uh, Pompeo is a Russian hawk. Nikki Haley is a Russian hawk. Right. Read any words they say about Russia. They're the ones who are actually doing the work. Donald Trump says some absolutely terrible things that make my skin crawl when he says that Vladimir Putin is a good guy and, and, and you know, he's not a murderer and so on and so forth. That, that, I find that very offensive, having been right. a, 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 a direct victim of all this stuff. Sure. But, that, but he's, he doesn't seem to be implementing any policies. If you look at the policies, the Russians are absolutely frustrated right now. Putin... Is is furious that all the stuff he was hoping for, and the, the, the Russian parliament is furious. All the stuff that they're hoping for, not, not a single thing has come to pass that's benefited Russia. 
So are you saying that if there was a deal between uh, Trump and Putin of any sort, that Putin is currently pissed off about it? He is extremely pissed off about it. And you can see that by the fact that they, they uh, threw out uh, 755 diplomats or, um, or people working for the embassy uh, in, in Moscow, which was a pretty dramatic thing. We, we threw out 35 of their people for, for hacking, election hacking, and they, and they threw out 20 times as many of our people. And Trump um, jokes it, about it. And Trump joked about it, which is just amazing. And that was a non-story, which just blew my mind. Um, but are you also saying, Bill, then, so if, if Putin's pissed, it also sounds like you're saying that it was, at least with regard to Russia, that, tr- that Trump is completely impotent and effectively not even really president. Well, he, he can't be because the, 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 um, the, the Congress has, won't let him, and, and, well, and nor, will his, uh, nor, nor will the people who work for him let him. And so, you know, they, like Trump came up with some idea about um, doing a, a cyber, uh, uh, let's cooperate with the right. Russians on cybersecurity. That, they, they came up with that at the G20. Well, um, you know, we're going to cooperate with the people who hacked us. <laughs> and, and, and so that, that, that um, lived for about a, a half hour after that agreement was made. And then, and then when it came to, to the people who actually might do it, you know, it all got dissolved. And there is no cooperation with Russia on cybersecurity. Uh, okay, so then, so then what is Trump's, when, I'm sorry, what is Putin's next move now that he realizes that, uh, that the guy he thought was going to be doing his bidding is powerless to do it, is impotent to do it, knowing Putin like you do, what do you think his next move will be? Well, you see, the great thing for Putin, he, he, he he's, he's, a, um, uh, he's like a cobra. He can just sit in the grass and wait for the circumstances to change. And so it's not working out the way he wanted it to work out, but he's a patient man, and, and things change. And, you know, maybe, you know, uh, I guess he's just waiting to see how, you know, perhaps, um, uh, you know, Trump will find himself in a better situation where he can then deliver on, on what they, they had agreed on, if, if they had agreed on anything or, or, or whatever. Let me ask you, Bill, about another uh, news story that that actually occurred this week that's related and and I think has a connection to you. Uh, It involves a congressman from here in California, Dana Rohrbacher, who I I met and never really thought highly of. Uh, He apparently has been trying to broker a bizarre deal between uh, Julian Assange of uh, WikiLeaks and, uh, and Trump for a pardon if uh, they can provide some sort of proof, which I find hard to believe uh, exists, that Russia did not really hack uh, into the DNC and didn't do all the things that they're being accused of. Um, my understanding is that you actually previously filed a complaint against Rohrbacher for uh, his role in, in Russia. Uh, what, what did you make of that whole situation? Well, so first of all, let, let, let's let's educate the audience on on who Dana Rohrbacher is, what his connection to this case is. Dana Rohrbacher um, is an Orange County uh, congressman, um, has been there forever, and um, when Natalia Veselnitskaya was trying to get the Magnitsky Act um, repealed, he was her main conduit in Congress, and um, and so Rohrbacher was at one point trying to get Sergei Magnitsky's name taken off of something called the Global Magnitsky Act, which is which is the morphing of the Russian Magnitsky Act globally, because the Russians hated so much, they wanted to take his name off of it because the Russians hated so much that Magnitsky was becoming a sort of symbol and icon for, for corruption and human rights abuse around the world. And so Dana Rohrbacher actually tried to have Magnitsky's name taken off of this thing. He was trying to get a movie, uh, an anti-Magnitsky, anti-Bill Browder movie, 
um, uh, put on in that uh, was created by a bunch of uh, Russian uh, uh, government-connected hacks, trying to get this put on in Congress. And he was trying to do all this stuff. Um, uh, he was, and he even um, basically hand-delivered um, various documents from Russian agents that he picked up in Moscow um, to various people in Washington. And so this guy is like a seriously um, co- uh, compromised character. Um, I, bo- I believe that he's in violation of a number of U.S. laws, and uh, I've even made c- uh, complaints to the U.S. Department of Treasury about his his uh, uh, activities that I believe to be criminal. And um, uh, so uh, he, he was involved in all that stuff. And then we discover that he's he's also now uh, hanging out with Julian Assange, who we all know to be effectively a, a sort of information disseminator, a uh, hacked information disseminator for the Russian government, and then trying to come and, and uh, get Assange pardoned with Trump. And so this guy is seriously bent in every possible way. And, and it's interesting for me to see the reaction I get on Twitter when I start talking about Rohrbacher. I mean, people just go crazy around America because they're so angry that a congressman would be doing such bad stuff. What is but his motivation? What, what do you believe his motivation to be, Bill? Well, um, I, I, uh, it, it's, it's hard to say. It's not, he's not just a, a foolish old man, which is how I think he'd ultimately, that, that, that's going to be his defense when, 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 the, when the cases actually start. Um, he's not foolish. He's not stupid. He, he's a guy who knows exactly what he's doing. And, um, uh, you know, perhaps at some point they got to him. That, that's, that's my theory. The Russians got to him somehow. Got to him with blackmail or bla- got to him by payment? Or what would be the normal Russian M.O.? Those there? are the two ways. So ba- basically they, they, they usually they, they, they get somebody, they find somebody's weakness. It's whether it's um, money, women, alcohol, whatever. Um, they they uh, uh, cultivate that weakness. And then, and then, uh, and then once they have enough uh, uh, information, then they use the, uh, uh, the, the, the weakness that they had to uh, blackmail and, and extort and, and push that person. I don't know what happened with Rohrbacher, but I know his behavior is, is completely inconsistent with any person acting in, in as a congressman. It's not for he's not a, he's not you know it's not because he's stupid. You know, there's only two excuses: stupid or corrupt. It's not, and and I think it's not because he's stupid. Speaking of these things, I'm sure you obviously read the uh, infamous Trump dossier. Uh, what was your assessment of that, based upon what the way you know that Russia operates? Well, this this is another story that's intimately connected to me, which is that the the um, the, the man who who organized the Trump dossier from Washington is a guy named Glenn Simpson. Uh, Glenn Simpson um, ran a firm called Fusion GPS, and this is where the story gets really twisted. While he was preparing the Trump dossier, he was working for Natalia Veselnitskaya, trying to um, effectively um, spread false information about me and Sergey Magnitsky in Washington, hmm. and so. When I learned about that, I said to myself, well, I mean, the dossier reads, it, it, it's, reads very compellingly if you read it, um, and, and some of the stuff sounds like it could be true. But, but then when I, the moment that I found out that Glenn Simpson was involved, I said, well, this guy is, a, is like a, a, a person who, who um, uh, knowingly lies um, for money mm-hmm. for his clients because he did that against us, and I can prove that. Okay. And so what, what would prevent him from lying in this situation? So, I mean, it, it's... To the extent that everyone's relying on the dossier as as the hope for 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 um, um, you know somehow uh, putting Trump into a corner, I, I, I wouldn't put my bets there because this guy Glenn Simpson is totally compromised. But, sure. Um, 
Manchester. Well, that's good information. I, I, I did not know that. I did know, and I'm curious what you make of this, that your testimony and some of the things you said surrounding your testimony to the Senate Judiciary Committee has really been used by both the left and the right uh, in this whole controversy and debate. Did, first of all, do you agree with that? And, and second of all, do you, do you take some uh, some pride or solace in that, 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 uh, that everybody seems to have an issue with, with some of the things you've said? Well, nobody has an issue. Every, everyone was using it sort of to, to support their point. I mean, everybody, right. That's what know, I mean. There's, there's, That's there's, what there's, I mean. Yeah. There's a, there's a huge amount of partisanship, and, and I'm very, very clearly trying to avoid partisanship here because my issue right. is, is with Vladimir Putin and the murder that he committed and getting justice for that murder. I'm not going to jump in on any side in any of this political debate in terms of who's right and who's wrong in this stuff. And, they, and everybody, when I was being uh, questioned that the Senate Judiciary Committee wanted to sort of put me into a, in a, quarter, a corner, right. a partisan corner, and I stayed away from that because I have a, I have a mission, which is a, a mission for justice for my murdered colleague, right. and I'm not going to let it get hijacked by partisanship. Well, good for you. I, I, and I really do respect your, your quest for justice here because, you, you know, you've got a lot of money. You could be doing a lot more. You know things that are a lot more fun than this, and um, you know, and, and it's you deserve a lot of credit for for getting as far as you have. I mean, heck, getting any through anything through Congress of any significance in this day, day and age is almost impossible. So, uh, how you did this is, is really remarkable, and and clearly you've gotten to Vladimir Putin. So, uh, you know that that scores your points as well. I want to ask you about the book uh, to give us the, the assessment of the book and and why people should be interested in reading it. But before I do that, one other substantive question, Bill. I, and some people have been confused by this, and I, I don't have an answer. So maybe you could just explain. So you, you grew up in America, in, in the Chicago area, and now you, you live in, in London, and you know, you're no longer an American citizen. So American citizens obviously are, I think, inherently at least confused by anyone who would give up American citizenship. Why did you do that? Um, so I, um, I come from a, a very unusual family. My grandfather was the general secretary of the American Communist Party um, for 13 years, from uh, 1932 to 1945. Uh, his name was Earl Browder. And um, he ran for president of the Communist and, and was eventually kicked out of the Communist Party for, for not being communist enough. And then, but but the, the story got really uh, dark and horrible for my family in the 1950s when, when he was then pursued by the McCarthy people. And the stuff that, 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 that happened to my family in America um, because of the McCarthy era was, was unforgivable. And the particular incident that was the most unforgivable, which has stayed as legacy through my family ever since, was that my grandmother, who my grandfather had met in Russia um, before they moved to America, um, uh, she'd been living in America for, for uh, more than 20 years. And uh, in the 1950s, she was... Um, diagnosed as having cancer, and she was on her deathbed. And as part of the uh, attack on, on the Browder family, they tried while she was dying to have her deported back to Russia. And that was a, a thing that, that um, has stayed in my heart and everyone's heart in my family for a long time. And, and so when I, uh, I moved to England uh, uh, 28 years ago, and, and when, I, when I moved to England, I became a British citizen, and I decided to uh, be a citizen of one country, which is Britain, and not a citizen of America, um, because of what happened to my family. What what do they think in Britain of the uh, the Trump Russia story? Well, in Britain, there's not much um, debate. <laughs> People are all pretty much on one side, which is that um, uh, uh, you know it's not uh, they're 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 not they're, people are not too um, sympathetic with the um, 
uh, the pro-Trump movement uh, in this in this part of the world. So in Britain, people are totally buying that Putin elected Trump. Um, well, Britain people don't like Trump to start out with because um, all this "Make America Great Again" um, is is not very conducive to um, all the bilateral relations that they've had before. Sure. Um, uh, uh, and then you know, getting rid of climate uh, the the, the uh, climate agreements and NATO and just about a lot, a lot of very many things um, sort of rub, rub rub against the grain of of, uh, of what people believe here. And um, uh, and I think that that more or less. That yeah, you know, there's a there's a pretty uh, negative attitude in this part of the world. <laughs> I think that's probably putting it mildly, but understood. Okay, so your book, Red Notice: A True Story of High Finance Murder and One Man's Fight for Justice. Obviously, you've gone through, you know, the bullet points, the of the the big picture of the book. But give us a little bit more sense as to why people should be interested in reading this. Well, they should read it. They should be interested in reading it primarily because it's just a great read. I mean, put, let's put aside all politics and the interests of Russia or not, or you know, politics, or anything. Uh, this is it's just a great book to read. And, and I, I mean, I wrote it, so I'm being a little bit immodest <laughs> saying that. But 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 I mean, enough people have told me this was just they couldn't put it down once they started reading it. And, and I guarantee you, if you read the first five pages, you will, you will not be able to stop reading the book. And that's why that's the main reason why you should read it. It's just because it's it's absolutely enthralling. You, you, it sucks you into a. It's, it's a real. It's a true life, um, you know, murder political mystery, um, and um, and and it also ends up um, educating you a lot about a, a thing that, that we all need to understand, which is who's this guy Vladimir Putin and what's he trying to do to us? Because I was the canary in the coal mine, and I could tell the story before anyone else ever had to think about it. Well, Bill, we really appreciate your time, and uh, we urge people to take a look at uh, Red Notice, and uh, and we thank you for fighting for justice, we, we, because not too many people are willing to do that, especially when they have options to do other things. So so thank you for everything you've done. Thank you. All right, that's uh, Bill Browder, author of the book Red Notice, a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight uh, for justice, and um, interesting guy, smart guy. What a story, though. I mean, when you think about this, and, and he kind of, um, you know, bristled a little bit that uh, his impact was as, as large as, as I portrayed it to be. But you could make a strong argument <clears throat> that without him and his lawyer, Magnitsky, Magnitsky, who ends up getting murdered by Putin and is, has his name on these sanctions, without all those dominoes, including him not giving up, because he could have easily given up and no one would have ever even known the Magnitsky story. Without any of that, from what I can tell, I don't think that there's enough for Putin to be motivated to do what he did during the 2016 election. Now, is it possible he would have anyway? Sure, but at the very least, we wouldn't be having this discussion about the Trump people saying that the meeting at Trump Tower was about adoptions. And Trump saying that his conversation with Putin at the summit was about adoptions. That would not be happening without Bill Browder's quest for justice. And there's, as you also could tell, he's almost like the Forrest Gump of this story. He's involved in so many different aspects of it, if only by uh, coincidence, although it might not be coincidence. As far as what really did happen, you know, it's clear that Bill doesn't want to say what he really thinks. I mean, I... I'm guessing here, but it's clear to me that Bill is not a pro-Trump guy, 
but he also doesn't want his what he's saying to be politicized, which I get and respect and think is probably a smart move on his part. I did think it was interesting that he knew the guy who wrote the dossier, the dossier that I've always felt was relevant and potentially true, but that there were certain things that didn't make total sense about it. Obviously, the thing that most people remember with regard to the dossier is the Trump P-tape. The, the P-tape, to me, at this point, you know, for a lot of liberals, the P-tape is like the holy grail of this. Oh, if we can just get the P-tape, Trump is over with. I don't believe that at all. Even if the P-tape existed, I really don't think that that would, that would hurt Trump nearly as much as people think. Now, it would hurt him a little bit because he did deny it. But hell, what is what different in this day and age? It doesn't mean anything anymore. I mean, oh, so he lied. He only lied because it was good for the country. He was trying to make America great again. I mean, frankly, the only thing that would really hurt Trump and the P tape is if the women he was with were really super ugly. Or, you know, maybe if uh, his penis was super small. You know, then the Make a Great America Great Again crowd might go, ooh, ugh. Well, they, they, that might that might make them turn on Trump a little bit if the if the women were fat and ugly and and uh, and he was pathetically endowed, but uh, the actual existence of a P tape, uh, I don't think does it anymore. As insane as that sounds, as insane as that sounds, I honestly don't think. I think it's almost already built in. It's already baked in the cake. That's the insanity of the world we're currently living in. But anyway, back to the bigger picture. I don't know what happened with Russia. I don't. But there is just way, way too much smoke, too much coincidence. The timeline makes too much sense for there not to have been something, whether it was wink, wink, nod, nod, what have you. And to me, and I got to tell you, obviously I'm not a fan of Hillary Clinton, even though I got accused of being such because I was not on the Trump train. You know, her statement this week, in, because her book came out, about Russia and Trump was about the most dramatic as anybody with a high profile that I've seen. Because she doesn't have anything to lose, really. And she, I think she laid it out in a, in a pretty cogent and rational fashion. And I, I think she's pinpointed the one area that if, if collusion is the standard. And see, to me, collusion's not the standard. To me, the standard is, are you compromised as president of the United States because of your interaction with Vladimir Putin? That, to me, is enough. That, to me, ought to be the focus. That's what I care about. Are you compromised? Not did you technically collude in a way that might violate some statute or may not. Uh, you know, that's, I mean, that's interesting, but it's not, to me, as significant, but... If, if, you're, if your standard is collusion, the Facebook and Twitter element of this, to me, is integral to understanding what likely happened. And, and Hillary has mentioned this. It's hard to believe that Russians, teenagers in Macedonia, who I have always... That was my first... 
what the hell? There's no way. I, I mean, it's just, it, it makes me laugh every time I think about it. You know, during the campaign, there was this, oh, isn't this cute? These teenagers in Macedonia have just organically decided that they can make a lot of money creating fake news about Hillary Clinton and, Clinton and putting it on the Internet and, and sharing it on Facebook. Bullshit. Bullshit. There is there's absolutely no fucking way... And I don't. I try not to curse that much on the podcast, but there's no fucking way that a bunch of Macedonian teenagers decided, you know what, we're going to put the small amount of money that we have in this world, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put it into creating fake news about Hillary Clinton because we're confident we can get our money back by sharing it on Facebook. No, no, that did not happen organically, all right? But how did those teenagers, how did the Russians, whoever was that was organizing this, how did they know which topics and which demographics and which geographical locations to target? How could they have possibly known that? There's no way. I mean, maybe they're really good. Maybe their intelligence on America is really, really good. But this went even under the radar of the Clinton campaign. Not that they were a bunch of geniuses. But the, the reality is, Oxum's razor, they had to have some help. They could not have done this all by them lonesome for no particular reason, just for shits and giggles. Hey, let's see if we can fuck with the American election and see what happens because we're not expecting anything in return and we have no guidance whatsoever. Please. Please. It's just flat out ridiculous. Yeah, I just don't believe that. So I don't know what did happen, but I can tell you that that narrative I just put, put out there makes no damn sense. Does it make it impossible? No, but when you consider the amount of lying that's been going on by the Trump people and the, the amount of fear that Trump has, having fired Comey and threatening to fire Mueller, it's not compatible with an innocent explanation. It's just not. All right, I'm sure we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks, for however long this podcast may still exist. Uh, as always, I ask only two things of you. Make sure that uh, you share this podcast via social media, Twitter, Facebook, whether you're Russian or not, uh, and uh, word of mouth because it's the only real way people will ever find out about it. And number two, do yourself a favor, and if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep you use sheets, make sure you pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. 
Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.